You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Sheriff Errol Toulon from the Suffolk County, New York Sheriff's Department, which was founded in 1683. It's the oldest law enforcement agency in New York. Sheriff, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us today. Thank you for having me on today. So, now, I gave a real quick blurb. I mean, the oldest 16, I can't even do the math. How many years is that now at this point? It's over 340 years. That's amazing. Amazing. And thank you for your service, first and foremost, for everything that you do for the community, locally, and overall. Thank you. So tell us your elevator pitch. Help us understand a little bit better, 30 seconds or so about you and the sheriff's department. Sure. I am the 67th sheriff and the first African-American sheriff to ever hold this position in Suffolk County. I am the highest ranking law enforcement person in the entire county. I have two jails that I oversee uh, with approximately 850 inmates. I have correction officers, deputy sheriffs that not only patrol the roadway. Uh, We do pistol licensing, evictions, orders of protection, and we have a domestic violence unit. So we're a really robust department serving our community. It is such a shame that we need to have those kinds of services for the most part, but we're certainly glad that we have people like you in there to help in those areas. So once again, thank you for your service. What's your favorite part of your job and why? I think the thing that I enjoy the most is going out and speaking to our youth. Prior to the pandemic, I was in one to two schools per week talking to students about various issues that they're confronted with. And I would have never imagined some of the things that they told me that they have to deal with that... I would never even consider. So speaking to our youth, trying to empower them, and also breaking down that barrier between our youth and the law enforcement community is something that I enjoy doing. And what are some of the topics that you would talk to the children on that you mentioned things you never imagined that you'd have to talk to them on? What what populates that list? So bullying, vaping, opioids, and gangs are the top four themes that seems to permeate uh, most of the schools throughout our county. And is that high schools or does that go all the way down to elementary? middle schools and high schools, ironically. And, and it's sad when you think about, you know, we understand the bullying, you know, we all experience some sort of bullying probably, or, or at least sort in our lives. But now when you hear these kids where there's opioids, where there's pill parties going on, the vaping, which there wasn't vaping, you know, that's something that's sure. relatively new. So those are some of the things that our youth are experiencing. It's, wow, amazing. And as a parent, you sit there and you think, Phew. What's going to happen when my kids get to that age? What's the next thing along the way? Got to help us. But now, what is something that's happening in the organization or in the community now or where you see it on the horizon that's really interesting? And how do you have to adjust your messaging when talking to different stakeholder groups about it? You know, we created a unit called the START Resource Center, and START is an acronym for Sheriff's Transition and Reentry Team. And what this team does is help individuals post-incarceration. So any man or woman leaving one of my two jails, we're seeking to help them with the resources in their various community. And so naturally, the first thing that many groups ask me is, how much is this costing the taxpayer? And it's not costing the taxpayers zero. We have not increased our operational budget one cent to create this program. 
what I do try to relay to many people is that this is a way to have less victims in our community. We will reduce the recidivism rate here in Suffolk County and have less victims. We've had over 500 people participate in this program with a 12% recidivism rate, where the average in New York State is almost 30%. Wow. And so we're 18% less than the state average. And we're able to work with these individuals so that they can address some of the needs they have when they return back to our community. So where are you finding these? I mean, not the inmates that you're you're helping to reintegrate into regular society, but these different community groups that you're speaking with, with the different perspectives. Where's the engagement? We're fortunate enough to meet many of our constituents in a variety of places, whether they're school auditoriums, firehouses, community centers, or even public libraries to talk about what we're doing. And many individuals, you know, I deal with two groups. One are those that are very sympathetic to those that are incarcerated. And then you meet the other group that says, you know what, lock them up, throw away the key, and we don't want to see them again. And so the messaging is extremely important to see the value of this program. One is that we're going to be able to put people back into our communities to hopefully be productive members of society. Two, there are not going to be any victims. There'll be less victims in our community when we help them. And so both sets of constituencies seem to understand, even if they don't like it, they understand and they appreciate that there's some value to what we're trying to do to help the people that are returning back to the communities. Because 85% of them leave our facilities and return back. So that's a lot of people. Back to the facility or back to the community? 85% of the inmates in our facilities return back to the community. Mm. They do not go to an upstate prison. So why not help them while they're here to have less victims in our community? What do you think are the top two or three reasons why people who've been in jail for however long it is? What's a typical jail sentence? Are we talking weeks, months, years? The typical stay is actually like 28 days. But in our facility, we hold them for a year or less while they're pretrial. Got it. So when someone comes out and they are reintegrated, or at least they're released to go back into the community, they've served their time. What are the top two or three reasons why people would make another mistake, commit another crime, get rearrested and back in jail again? What are what are the two or three triggers? So either one, they have mental health issues, mm. two, they have substance abuse issues, or three, they're in an environment like gangs, you know, that causes them to commit a crime. Because if you are part of a gang and you do not do what they want you to do, then you will have to suffer the consequences, whether it's you or your family. And that's tough if that's your peer group in the business world or just regular whatever kind of employment people have. We always, in families, et cetera, we look a lot at your peer group, the pressures and the expectations and how they want you to behave, how they want you to talk. We don't think about the ability to leave your peer group or to, to go against the norms of the peer group is difficult when it's your own house, when it's your own work environment, when it's your own community. But yeah, when it's a gang where threatening violence is really not a problem as far as they're concerned. That really does take it to a whole extra level of pressure, isn't it? Yes. And it's not only violence against themselves, you know, there are threats against their family. Mm. And so sometimes these gang members are forced not only to join a gang, but to commit acts that they know could possibly put them in jail. Yes, that would be. How would you help then? What kind of services? And I'm probably going down a rabbit hole here, but what do you find are the two or three things that you can do in that start program if it's about the mental health, about substance abuse and or about gang affiliation as the most common reasons why people go back, you know, commit yet another crime and find themselves back in jail? What is something that the start program can do that helps them to avoid around two? 
when you look at substance abuse and mental health, they're being treated inside the facilities like they weren't treated prior to their incarceration. So now what the START Resource Center does is that continuum of care outside. We connect them with the resources outside in their communities so that they can continue to get the mental health or substance abuse treatment that they were receiving while they were incarcerated, which is that continuum of care is extremely important. You know, with gang members, it's very important for them to change their environment, Mm. see their own value within themselves. And so with certain service providers and also the guidance of some of our correction staff, we try to lead many people out of the gang life into a life where they can support themselves, their families, and be productive members of society. Got it. So giving them additional resources to understand how to do it, helping them with jobs, helping them with just finding new people to support in a healthier way. Correct. Yes. And this is part of what you're helping the community members to understand at the notion of, are you going to be inviting these, what's the right term for a former inmate, someone who's been released? Well, some people say former inmates. We like to say justice-involved individuals. This way, it doesn't give them that stigma of uh, them being an inmate inside jail. Justice-involved individuals. I like it. Okay. So lots of stuff to educate the community about understanding what the value is for these people, because heaven knows jail is not going to be a cure for mental illness by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Okay. So with regard to your own communication skills, what's something that you are really good at and what's something that you wish you were better at? You know, I think I'm really good at motivating people. I really enjoy talking to all my staff from the top to the rank and file whether it's, hi, how are you doing? How's your family? What issues are you confronted with? How can we make your job better? Is something that I really try to speak to as many staff members as possible. And I think that open line of communication, myself being vulnerable by walking into the areas where they're at and not being concerned about being asked those tough questions. Sometimes staff members are, are reluctant to ask me those questions. But I do think me being open and available to them has really helped me in my communication. I think one of the things that's challenging is that now I'm in a role where I'm an elected official. And prior to my my senior level appointments in law enforcement, I was always an appointed position and reported to a commissioner or a mayor. Here, I am the top of the food chain. Mm. And so my communication with constituencies, my communication with staff members, my communication with young kids, you know, I have to make sure that I'm on point all the time. And I know I am doing all the talking as opposed to deferring to my boss to answer the question. So I'm, I'm not answering it incorrectly as he or she may have looked at me. So those are some of the challenges when you're dealing with a different type of audience because of a newer position. Sure. And now I'm curious, you mentioned that there are certain kinds of questions that staff are reluctant to ask. Like what? You know, there's sometimes there are questions regarding why there lack of staffing in, in certain areas when we talk about the jails, or they're interested in an increase in training. And some of the things we may be looking at, but because of either staffing or budgetary constraints, it may be very challenging for us to accomplish that goal, as they have mentioned it. But I would let them know that it is something that we are looking at. And I also sometimes tell them some of the obstacles that I'm faced with as the sheriff to accomplish some of the goals that I like to do. Sure, sure. And I think that helps build empathy when people understand more transparently. Look, it's not what I it's not that I don't want to help you with this. It's not that I don't want to hire more people or provide you with these resources. Don't have it or having a hard time getting it. Trust me, I'm behind the scenes advocating right, left and center, but it's an uphill battle. Yes, it really is. Okay. 
Now, in you mentioned going to now the elected official position as sheriff, as opposed to some of the four previous roles that you've had, although all in law enforcement. How have you had to learn to shift your communication style or your approach to connect with different groups effectively? And was it ever hard? Was that a steep learning curve at any point? You know, it, it really was a steep learning curve for me because I came from an organization that had over 15,000 employees, 25,000 inmates at one time. And it was very paramilitary. So it was policy procedures. You did what you were told or they did what you expected them to do. I want to clarify that term paramilitary. For those who are unaware, can you just explain what that means? Sure. We're not a full military organization, but we still have a rank and file. We do have subordinates. We have superior officers and we follow our orders. That's basically what we do. Follow your last order and do what you're told to do. Got it. And so, you know, with that, when you come to a smaller organization, that has developed its own culture. You know, I was in a city in New York City as a law enforcement person, and now I'm in the suburbs and uh, have done things differently. I, you know, you mentioned a long history in the sheriff's office. So, you know, it's a culture change for me and for the staff. So the communication, the trust is a huge challenge uh, when you walk in this type of environment. I would imagine. And what did you have to do to be able to shift and get accepted in the new world, in that the elected official, you had to run for office at that point. You're in the suburbs as opposed to back in the city. How did you manage to scale that curve? I think the minute I was declared the winner, because I only had 53 days to run for that particular election. My goodness. Yes. So the minute I was declared the winner was right before Thanksgiving of 2017. So I came into work on Thanksgiving Day, greeted all the staff, thanked them for coming to work. And I came into work on the weekends, other holidays. And I think the staff saw that I really cared about what was going on. Of course, you know, they see this figure walking around that's unfamiliar to them because previous sheriffs never engaged with the staff the way I was. Mm. So it was that was new to them. The New York City background, the first African-American getting into the race so late, you know, I really had to make sure that I gained their trust in accomplishing the mission I wanted to accomplish here. That sounds like you did that quite successfully. So far. (laughs) That's great. And it is amazing how when you are at the top and you walk in and in the beginning, you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty, as it were, and share in those initial duties, working the the less desirable shifts, the weekends and the holidays and doing those kinds of things. It builds a trust, doesn't it? It builds a trust. And I think especially coming from New York City, they realized that I understood the job that they're trying, that they're doing every single day. I wasn't an outsider. I had you know, work my way through the ranks in New York City, and now I'm here. But what a lot of people don't realize is that when you're the leader of the organization, when you're in your office by yourself, you know, the ups and downs of that organization is something that you're contending with. Yes. And you got to set that bar real quickly in the beginning to establish that trust, especially when there's that perceived gap of you don't know us, you don't know who we are, you've never been in our shoes, you don't understand what we're going through. You got to close that gap really fast. Right. So, This brings us then, Sheriff, to the Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge. This is an opportunity for you to talk directly to our listeners and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? So this is the challenge. For 24 hours, I would not want any of your listeners to think negatively about themselves or anyone that they may encounter during that 24-hour period. So if you're in a supermarket and you see someone doing something you don't like or you disagree with, unless it's criminal, don't think negative of them because you do not know what's going on in their life. Healthcare issues, financial issues, relationship issues, 
and also about yourself. If you're feeling like you can't accomplish things, you're not doing as well as your sister or your friend or your high school buddy, you know, think about positive things and how you can get to where you want to be is what I'm hoping your listeners would do. I love it. Now, honestly, thinking about those examples that you gave, the hardest part of it is not so much how to not be critical of other people or how to not have negative thoughts of others, but how to not be your own worst critic, how to not beat yourself up for stuff, how to not sit there and just go over and over mistakes in your head and not let yourself off the hook, how to forgive yourself and move on and find a way to just learn what you need to learn but don't dwell. Is it my imagination? Do you feel like that may also be the harder of the two options? No, I definitely think that is. And, you know, social media is one venue where a lot of people tend to lose their self-identity because what they want to do is be what they see. Either it's the workout person, the athlete, the model, the rapper, the, the musician. And so I always tell our youth, be the best person that you can be, whether you're uh, the maintenance man or you're the corporate attorney, just seek to be the best and not to be anything else that you don't feel you want to be. So here's the real question, Sheriff. The 24 hours, not allowing yourself negative thoughts about other people, does that count when you're behind the wheel? Uh, Only if you're talking to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I think that of all scenarios, like, wait, when that guy cuts me off on the highway or that person sitting there at a, you know, you right turn on red and they're not turning and I need to get going around that corner. I, I can be a little impatient, I have to confess. So, okay. How about this? There's a 15 second, you get 15 seconds if you have to out of that 24 hour period. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> got it. So 15 total seconds. So if you're going to break down into three, five second windows, that's up to you, but you got 15 seconds of reprieve. Yes. So count those seconds carefully, like every calorie, every second counts. I love it. Okay. Then now let's talk about some mistakes that you've made along the way, because while we'd love for people to think that we were just born perfect, had everything go the right way, and hey, look at that, we're at the top now, I'm guessing it wasn't always quite that simple. So what's an example of a communications-related mistake that you made? And if you could have had a do-over, what would it sound like? When I was a deputy commissioner in New York City, I really, as I look back now, I really felt like I should have voiced my opinion a little bit more than I had. I think not giving myself the opportunity to give really good opinions or good advice or even be part of the conversation. I was someone that was really followed the rules and regulations and did what I was told to do. And ultimately, not because of that reason, you know, I was asked to resign at some point. And I do think that during that time period, I should have spoken up. I should have given my input. You know, hopefully things might have changed with the New York City Department of Correction where reduction in violence or or staff assaults might not have occurred. But, you know, I continued to follow the commissioner's and the mayor's edict. And, you know, ultimately it led to me being forced to resign. And so I think the communication of just following, even in a respectful manner, just give my opinion and say, I don't think that this is the right thing to do. Or it is something we should be doing. It's something I should have been a little bit more vocal about. Yes. And that's hard to speak truth to power, right? That's something, especially in a rank and file as you mentioned, paramilitary kind of organization to speak up in dissent among the ranks when that's not a value that is necessarily touted as something desirable. It's not something that's encouraged. Uh, And yet we look at studies like the Center for Talent Innovation and, and others have put out great studies that break down 
the variables of what creates executive presence, for example. And under umbrella terms like gravitas, and what does it mean to have gravitas as a leader? A lot of it is about being able to speak truth to power, being able to hold your ground and letting your words have teeth, so to speak, or being able to make the tough decisions even when you know you're going to be really unpopular as a result of them. And uh, it, it sounds like that's something that you have grown into in particular, now more as sheriff. Is is that accurate? Yes. And, you know, many times, you know, the old saying, the emperor has no clothes. Mm. You know, you wanted to tell the emperor they had no clothes on. But if you did, especially if you think about a corporate board meeting or, in our, in our case, you know, an executive leadership meeting, or, that it would be very difficult to speak up in front of all your peers or even some that are above you and say, this is not the right thing to do because maybe it's not the mission of the commissioner. Yes. Yes. And everybody, when it's political in particular, everybody's got to get behind it. We need everybody on board towing the party line, as it were. So now what's an example then of a time when you had to share some bad news or initiate a difficult conversation? How'd you handle it and how did it go? You know, during the course of my career, I've had to, unfortunately, let some people go and let people go in mid-level and senior level positions. And that's a challenging talk to have because you're dealing with people that have been part of an organization for quite some time. They may have developed their own network of people within the organization. They may have had certain challenges and they're embedded in the culture that you're working in. And so if they're not meeting the expectations and it's just not, they didn't meet the expectations and now they're gone, you know, there was a graduation of things that had occurred. And so when the time came and I told them that they were going to be replaced and they needed to move on with their lives and their careers. You know, it's a very difficult conversation. One, because it happened to me in New York City. Sure. So I was on the receiving end, but I've also been on the end where I had to, um, you know, make the changes myself for the betterment of an organization or a unit. So if I can ask about that, having been and look in, in cities and in elected spaces, there's lots of times when people are asked to step down for whatever difference of opinions, et cetera. What did you learn from when you were asked to step down in New York City? And how did you use that experience to help guide the way that you handled it when you had to replace someone else? So I think when I was asked to resign, it was very respectful. It wasn't in an embarrassing way. I think it was done as as tactfully as they can do it. So I respected and appreciated that aspect. You know, of course, it's painful and it's, you know, your ego is, is extremely bruised. Sure. Some of the things were a little bit different for me because there were inappropriate or unethical things that were going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, those weren't things that I were, was accused of. It was just the organization was moving in a different direction from what I was told. Sometimes, you know, you're faced with telling your friends or people that you've worked with for many, many years that, you know, it's just not working out the way you had planned. And you need to move on in a different direction. And so you try to do it respectfully. You don't want to demean anyone. You do not want to, um, you know, it's all, it's business. It's not personal. And so you just want to try and do it in a way where the organization can move on from it. And it's not a lingering effect where, you know, how the office gossip can be. And also some of the communications can permeate throughout an organization. So what did you do to keep the office gossip at bay? Was there anything that you you know put into place or any instructions you gave or what do you think helped keep that to a minimum? Well, many may have had assumptions as to what occurred. You know, not too many were in the room. Sure. And so it was just a matter of fact that officer so-and-so decided that they wanted to retire. 
or a chief decided they wanted to move on with their life. You know, for me, it, it was their decision to move on from the situation. And so I just said that they chose to move on and nothing embarrassing regarding the circumstances of their departure. Sure. How would you say you use the word respectful multiple times in describing both how it was done to you back in the day and how you have had to do it for others with regard to a termination. What's an example of how to make that conversation respectful? What was said or what wasn't said? I think one of the things is just pure honesty. I didn't try to, when I was told, I realized when you're saying I, I want to move in a different direction and then three weeks later, someone else is hiding your role. That's not moving in a different direction. <laughs> That's not the direction you had in mind. Yeah, exactly. When it came to when I worked in New York City. But, you know, we, whether it's an insurance office or correction, when I made those decisions, it was really just to move the organization in a different direction, in a better direction with employees that had different ideas and that could move it in what my goals were. Nice. Nice. And so now let's shift to the world of the virtual space as we there's only so much I would assume that a sheriff's department, law enforcement, correctional facilities, et cetera, can do on Zoom, as it were, or some other video platform. But what is something, what is a way that your department was able to leverage the virtual world over the course of the last couple of years? How have you improved in that space? And moving forward, what would help you or your department to be even more successful on video in whatever capacity? Sure. So we utilize Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as our primary means of getting a lot of our information out. Uh, many people now do not watch TV or read the newspapers, and they're on social media. And so whether there's still pictures of some of the things our staff are doing or videos, we try to keep our community and those that are following us engaged. During the pandemic, we were able to show us delivering masks because we had inmates in our custody making masks for our community. And we were able to deliver those masks to healthcare institutions, religious institutions, or grocery stores. We were out delivering food to some of our seniors because they weren't able to get out of their homes and go and pick up groceries. And so we were able to continue that message through social media, also giving our constituencies various information of what was occurring, not only in the sheriff's office, but in the community regarding the virus that was going on, COVID-19. And so we felt like we gained a lot more, not only respect for what the office does, because we thought of everything and anything that we were doing, whether it's big or small, to keep our followers engaged. But more importantly, it showed them that we really cared about our community and we were engaged with our community and we wanted to be embedded. So I think it really helped us a lot. So it sounds like you really made everybody's smartphone cameras go into overdrive there, used for everything possible, taking pictures of people on the job, doing those community service, uh, more positive images of law enforcement officers being helpful and being kind and being generous and being connected, and as opposed to the more criminal angle of a lot of your work with with the correctional facilities and whatnot. Was it so the pandemic actually provided an opportunity to enhance the public image? of law enforcement with a little friendlier face. Am I interpreting that right? You're 100% correct. You know, we were on the heels of a major legislation change in New York State. Then we were hit with the pandemic and then we were hit with social unrest, which is globally. And so we really need to display a positive law enforcement organization that was caring, that was engaging with our community. And so that was our goal during that two-year period. 
And it sounds like you met that goal quite successfully. Did I'm curious, did your numbers increase as far as the number of followers and, and fans on various pages and, and platforms? Yes, they did. And, you know, our staff made several media appearances on various shows. I know I was on several national cable networks. And so that helped fuel a lot of people into our, our social media space. Nice. Yes. Nice. Now, what about when you're thinking about who to promote up the ranks, who is your current, who is your future leadership team? What is something that has disqualified or could otherwise disqualify an otherwise technically qualified internal candidate from taking on a greater leadership role? And what would they have to do to fix the problem? You know, I've had to deal with several individuals and, and some of the basic things that were lacking was uh, communication skills, giving direction, really good direction to some employees, and, you know, working with employees that may be not meeting their goals or the needs of the organization. Sometimes you don't want to be a hammer when you can just walk in and you can communicate with someone or even find out maybe they're not doing a job because one, they don't understand it. Two, they're distracted because something else is going on in their life. And so I think it's extremely important for us as leaders to actually find out what is going on? Why aren't the people we think can rise, be the cream of the crop, but for some reason, they're just not rising for some reason and really assist them to getting where we feel that they can be? Because clearly we have the confidence in them being a leader in our organization. We are talking to them. We see these shining stars, male or female. And for some reason, they're just not reaching that pinnacle. And you know, for us to identify those issues and help them break through those issues so that they're effective, communicative, and they're engaging leaders, and someone that's inspirational to the men and women that they're leading is something that's extremely important to me. I'm curious, with mentioning that they lacked some of those communication skills, uh, like not just dropping the hammer of sorts, what are some of the, can you be a little bit more specific, not you know throwing anybody under the bus as it were, but just as far as what are some of the kinds of communication skills that they needed to sharpen? So there was a change in policy in some of the administrative functions that we wanted our supervisors to carry out. And instead of talking to the staff and explaining why, it was like, this is what they want, this is what we're doing, and that was it, there was no discussion. Mm. And so many individuals, especially depending on how much time they've spent in an organization, you know, they have earned that type of, even if they don't like it, at least give them the reasoning why. And sometimes it's not just because the boss said so, it's because it's better management. It's going to make us more efficient. And also because of the accountability factor that a lot of people tend not to think about. But I think if our staff can explain to their subordinates what exactly is going on and why these things are occurring, you know, that communication is there. And like I said earlier, whether they like it or not, at least they understand the rationale as to why decisions are being made. Sure, sure. That transparency. So many people are more willing to comply with a decision they don't necessarily like as long as they understand the motivation behind it. And when it's just shut up and do as I tell you, boy, is that does that just run over somebody's motivation? Right. All right. Lastly, then, Sheriff, advice to future generations. If you were asked to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony, what advice would you give the graduates, whether or not they go to college, regardless of major or career goals? What's the one thing they have to do to be successful? First thing, never give up on your dreams. Sometimes it may take you a lot longer than what you anticipated. Nothing comes fast because it won't be great if it comes that fast. There's no immediate gratification in this whole process to get to success. You know, you will have to work. It will take some time. 
And don't be frustrated. You know, I understand it's easy for me to say, but I can only say it because I've been there. I've been frustrated. I've been tired. I felt like giving up. I felt like quitting. And if any one of those things would have happened, I would not be on your show today. So I, I really thank you for that. But I do ask that you give yourself some time. Sometimes you may, you may need to take a step back and regroup, but you need to keep focusing on your goals, your dreams, and don't ever give up. Love it. Focus on the dreams. Do not give up. And I, thank you for that little PSA in there about immediate gratification, because if there's one thing cell phones have taught us is that, yeah, you can have immediate gratification. Whatever you want is right here at your fingertips, and you don't need to wait at all for anything ever. And I think that does us a little bit of a disservice as a society. So thank you for, for driving that point home. Sheriff, how can people learn more about you and the sheriff's office? Sure. Anyone can visit www.suffolksheriff.com or facebook.com backslash Suffolk Sheriff. At Twitter, we're at Suffolk slash Sheriff or on Instagram at Suffolk Sheriff. And you can send us a message. We'll be happy to respond. If you want us to come to your community or any particular service or presentation, we'll be happy to be there. And we will put all those links in the show notes. So if you're driving or otherwise don't have a pen on you, don't worry, you haven't missed it. Just go back in and check and we'll give you all those links to connect with Sheriff Toulon and the Sheriff's Department. Sheriff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And to everybody else, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your platform of choice so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for readers who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.